Welcome, I'm Ross Young and I'm here with G. Mark Hardy, and we are excited to share with you CISO Tradecraft. Just as a quick background in case you haven't heard our show before, CISO Tradecraft is a podcast designed to help folks in the information security community learn the techniques, methods, and technologies in the industry. The show focuses on helping mentor the next generation of cyber leaders take information security skills to an executive level. With that, I'm excited to present to you today's show. Well, hello and welcome to our first episode for the CISO podcast. And I am here with Ross Young, and we'd like to welcome you to what we hope is going to be a series of educational and informative programs. They're going to help you with your career, help you do your job better, and ideally improve the level of skill throughout our community. Uh, my name is G. Mark Hardy. My partner here is Ross Young. Yeah, and uh, the first kind of quick uh, introductions are basically our goal here is to be able to provide you with bite-sized pieces of actionable information, 30 minutes or perhaps 60 minute podcasts, depending upon what it is in the subject matter. You'll be able to then go ahead and uh, retrieve these at a later date, should you desire, or could you not participate live in this program, like some of you are. And so let's go ahead and briefly introduce ourselves so you know who you're going to be listening to. Ross, you know, feel free to go ahead. Hi, everyone. My name is Ross Young. I'm super excited to be here and to really share with you what we feel is CISO Tradecraft. Gmark and I were thinking about how could we be the premier company to help people who have gone down the cyber journey and now are a entry or mid-level cyber person trying to become a first-time CISO. And that's something I went through the journey. I spent most of my career at the Central Intelligence Agency. I was on the offensive side as well as running a lot of the defensive, setting up uh, DevSecOps pipelines, application security. And then, then I switched over to Capital One where I had the wonderful opportunity of being a divisional CISO, focusing on working with the lines of business, the cyber internal organization, the DevOps organization, and the place called Tech Commercializations, which sold software externally. And using my experience to help consult the business to make the right cyber decisions. A couple months ago, I switched over to Caterpillar Financial, which is the large bank behind the construction equipment company that is so famous. And I've had a fantastic time being a first-time CISO. G. Mark, do you want to tell us a little bit about your background? Well, thanks, Ross. Yeah, G. Mark Hardy. I have been doing security, long before we called it cybersecurity, it was information security, and literally got my first paid job, and I'm going to give away my age here, 1976, uh, when I was hired by the state of New York to fix all of the security problems that all these students had caused in their networks, of which I was probably one of the biggest hole finders. Uh, from there, I went on to Northwestern in an ROTC scholarship and spent 30 years of a misspent youth in the Navy, although the majority of that was the Navy Reserve. And so being a reservist, I was able to have a parallel track in a civilian career. What I found out is leaving active duty in the mid 80s and looking for security, went to work for Booz Allen and then another startup, but I found out there really weren't any career tracks. So I formed my own by starting National Security Corporation back in 1988. And for the most part have remained with that, although I did come in from the cold a couple times, worked at Ernst & Young as a senior manager and uh, have done that. I'm privileged to 
uh, also serve as a principal instructor at the Sands Institute. Um, full disclaimer or disclaimer, uh, this is not going to be Sands material that we're teaching. This is our own material here to make sure we don't cross the stream, so to speak. I work as a virtual CISO for a couple companies where I provide smaller or medium-sized businesses with the expertise that you'd want to get out of a chief information security officer without having somebody there 40 hours a week. Well, realistically, we know it's probably 60 hours a week. In addition, I also do consulting as well as a lot of presenting. And so as a result, with a focus on education and helping people with their careers, I'm really privileged to be working with Ross here to put out this series. Yeah, so as you get a chance to learn a little bit about us, I think what you'll see is we both are natural teachers. We love sharing the wisdom and knowledge that we have, as well as learning from guests and other folks we come around and have the opportunity to meet. So today we're going to start off with a really basic question that actually isn't so basic. What does a CISO do? G. Mark, what do you think? What are some key things that every CISO does in, in any organization? Well, I think to a certain extent, uh, we kind of used to joke that CISO stands for uh, chief infor uh, the um, chief information scapegoat officer or chief and things like that. It's the person you blame when anything goes wrong. And ultimately, a CISO is accountable for the security that is to say IT-based security, not necessarily physical security in an organization. Well, what does that mean? It means that when we look at the different elements of what would be a program in an organization, things such as doing the strategic planning as well as the architecture for security, how do we build this out? How do we manage risk throughout the IT enterprise to reduce that to an acceptable level to management? How do we ensure that we are operating in compliance with either uh, standards that are dictated to us by either by law or by contract or just by best practice oversee a number of technical functions such as protecting our data security, uh, managing the vulnerabilities that might be in our system, uh, looking at management, access management, and things such as that. And in a larger organization, we may be responsible for threat detection activities such as a security operations center, a SOC, um, pen testing, logging and monitoring, well, this kind of incident response and forensics. Basically, um, CISO can have an awful lot of these activities and perhaps even more, but perhaps the key qualification and differentiator as to what makes a CISO, this is my opinion, is the C, the chief. It means that you're actually one of the management team, meaning that you are conversant in the language of executives. You can speak not in just technical terms, but in actionable business terms. And a CISO ultimately is the bridge between your technical experts and your business decision-making experts, requiring a proficiency in both of those languages. Gee, Mark, I love that explanation you just gave. And the way I think of it is probably better illustrated through a story. So I grew up in Las Vegas, and while it's very known for casinos and gambling and hotels, what's also very impressive is some of the natural parks that they have and it's one of the greatest rock climbing spots in the world and there's a place called red rock canyon and as i think about rock climbing i think it makes the perfect example of what a CISO does if a rock climber goes to a national park 
And the CISO in this example is the National Park Ranger. The, there's an important role. They need to safeguard and enable the rock climber to take risks and have fun. Now, if the rock climber comes in and the CISO or ranger says, hey, you're just not allowed to climb, what is the rock climber going to do? They're going to wait till the, the ranger isn't looking and they're just going to climb behind his back. And, and that's the wrong thing for a ranger to do. Now, a different way would be to look at the rock climber's gear to inspect it for safety. Is their rope in good condition and not going to snap because it hasn't taken a large number of falls previously? Is their harness in good shape and has all the, the knots and, and stitchings where you would expect them to be in, in sound order? Do they have the right types of locking carabiners that are not going to come undone when they take a fall? Those sorts of things to safeguard the rock climber to take this risky climb, I think is really analogous to what we would see in the business world. What are the security things we would want to see on product-facing applications that customers use to make sure we're not going to be vulnerable to attackers or uh, criminal gangs that might try to put ransomware in our environment? How do we enable the business? Just like you would enable the rock climber, there are certain compliance things that we need to enable, whether it's GRC, uh, compliance for uh, the California Consumer Privacy Acts or GDPR for Europe. And last but not least, I think cyber has a very important role of being vigilant. How do we create a culture of cyber vigilance so that all of the users within a company understand how to protect the company by not clicking on spear phishing links and other things? And if you think about it, when you're rock climbing, you might have a spotter who tells you, hey, here's some different places you could climb to. Hey, watch out for this rock. It's very flaky. It could come off at any point in time. That type of vigilance helps safeguard the climber and also helps safeguard an IT organization. And, and Ross, I think you hit on an excellent point, is that as a CISO, you're not the chief no officer. You're not the person who's out there saying, no, you can't do this. No, you can't do that. Because exactly, people are going to find ways around. And my experience has been people will try about five times as hard to get around an obstacle than they will to just live with it if they don't understand why it's there. As you had suggested, the best approach is not to be the no, but the how. We want to do such and such. Okay, let me tell you how you can do so in a manner in which your risk is managed. You want to climb a rock? That's great. Is it risky? Potentially, but here are the mitigations that you can put into place that make your rock climbing, as you said, more of a fun activity than a terrifying activity. Uh, and so as a result, what you'll find is that the credibility that we earn in our organizations is based upon, to a large extent, how your interactions go with others that are gonna be outside of the security organization. Do they view you as a strategic partner that enables the organization to pursue new lines of business, so to speak, if you're in business or new lines of communication, even if you're a government agency, you want to try new things. Uh, for example, multi-factor authentication is now being set up on an awful lot of federal sites. It never was there before. Uh, those are things that need to be done to enable a business opportunity. And so rather than being the obstacle to progress, an effective CISO becomes the means by which progress is made 
in so far as the risk is managed to an acceptable level. And now when we start thinking of the CISO as being the person who is able to inform management of the risks involved with different IT activities and strategies, plus supervising the implementation of those, I think we get a better feel for how you plug in the business world and ultimately why you've earned that title of CISO rather than something that is just simply, well, I'm entitled to a new title. Uh, let me have it. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, I like the the focus of the how. You know, we don't want to be viewed as the office of no, N-O. We want to be the office of K-N-O-W, no, to know what the risks are know how to enable the business, provide the recommendation, and help the business to take the risk where it's prudent. And as we do these things that are consistent, adequate, timely, we can really enable the transformation in an organization. So we've talked a little bit about what uh, CISO does. Who are some of the biggest parts of an organization that would report to a CISO where you'd want to have that expertise or, or knowledge over what should they be performing for, for me and my role as I manage them? What metrics do I want to measure the success of these organizations by? What do you think, G-Mark? I think, you know, we, as we jump ahead to, you know, to whom is, who's going to report to you, Let's think just for a moment in terms of what is it you should know to be able to get to that point. All right. So in a way, I'm going to kind of skip a little bit ahead to say, what are we actually going to say that qualifies me as a CISO, which then is going to qualify me in terms of being able to do the activities I want to. So we have both hard skills and soft skills that are typically going to be representative of an individual in the CISO role. Uh, some types of hard skills, for example, would be understanding the methods and the practice of IT strategy. How do we go ahead and do that? Um, computer networking, uh, finding that being able to understand how does information move around the networks? Is it is TCP IP just alphabet soup or do you actually have a feel for what's happening at layers two and three and four in your enterprise? Um, looking at possibly some background in programming or at least understand how that's involved, as well as being proficient in the operating systems in your environment. Uh, regulatory compliance is going to be huge. Understanding what are the standards? Do we have to comply with Gramm-Leach-Bliley, Sarbanes-Oxley, uh, HIPAA, PCI, and now with California Consumer Privacy Act, as well as uh, a lot of the other international standards? And we'll, we'll cover all that in a later episode so you'll understand what we're talking about. Uh, looking at different frameworks, uh, being able to be proficient to understand are we using an ISO 27001 type of a framework. And as a kind of joke, uh, ISO is what the rest of the world uses. America will adopt ISO when we adopt the metric system. <laughs> Wait a minute, that is an ISO standard. Anyway, nonetheless, uh, other types of techniques in terms of tools, et cetera, for ethical hacking, threat modeling, intrusion detection, firewalls. So if we feel that we've reached that point of a knowledge base where we're effective at doing so, and one of the activities that we're looking at doing is helping to put together kind of a sanity check on your own skill sets, which we'll make available to you in the future to say, here's where I really need to get better and here are areas that I'm already competent at. Now let's take a look at the oversight that you'd have as a CISO. And so there are several different ways, but kind of six top level ones. One would be program management. 
uh, as an executive, you're going to be responsible for doing strategic planning. How are we actually going to go ahead and move from a concept to a reality? And strategic planning is not just about saying, I have an idea, I want to do it. It's about dovetailing that idea to the overall corporate strategy, being able to ensure that we're not off on our own direction, creating and building things uh, because we think it's cool, but without the executive support that says this is important. Uh, being able also from a program management perspective to be effective at running our finances and being able to track expenditures and being able to look at metrics. Uh, any executive is going to have to live within a budget. And uh, the problem is you got to learn that there's political elements of a budget. I can remember many years ago as a my first department head tour as an operations officer. And on board that ship, we had major departments, engineering, operations, deck, supply, et cetera. And we were given budgets throughout the year. Well, not being one to squander money, I was pretty much running below budget for the first half of the year because I knew I had some big purchases. I was going to do them toward the end of the year, et cetera. Well, what had happened is that the mid-year review, the chief engineer who was 12 years former enlisted and therefore a lot more experienced than I was from that perspective. He had spent all of his money and you can't run a ship without an engineering department. And so what happened is all this money I had saved for later from operations got pulled away and got reassigned to engineering. And it's like, but, but I'm a better steward of the money. Nope. We need it over here. So I kind of learned early on. Uh, one of those lessons is, is that just because you're managing your budget well, doesn't mean it's always going to be there for you suggesting that having that political awareness of being able to inform uh, your decision makers who are assigning uh, funds is going to be an important part of being a CISO. Otherwise, you're going to find out that you're getting poached and things such as that. Now, there's other things as well. Russ, what do you think about like um, governance risk compliance? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, so this is the one thing that is pretty consistent. In order to sell or to operate as a company, which is licensed, you have to be compliant. If you're in the medical industry, you'd have to do things like HIPAA. If you're in the federal sector, you know maybe you have to do NIST cybersecurity framework or a DOD specific framework. In the banking sector, it's PCI compliance. So you, every organization has some force, some type of compliance that they're required to do. And what the key part of that is how do we identify key controls that our organization needs to complete? How do we ensure those are happening by having management processes to effectively perform functions, having a second line who can actually audit uh, different perspectives? Not the audit organization, but like a cyber or a compliance shop, someone to really ensure the metrics and things are being performed. And then third line is normally the audit role. So those types of governance risk and compliance functions are really in every organization that I've seen. And they're so important to ensuring proper risk management and compliance so that you meet all of the necessary regulatory re statutes and requirements to exist. And you've, you've brought up a good point when you talk about compliance. The thing you need to be careful of with compliance is compliance does not equal excellence in terms of security. Compliance is a C minus. It's a minimum passing grade. It gets the auditors and perhaps the legal department off your back. But compliant organizations are hacked every day. 
And therefore, when you look at how do you build your mindset for being an effective CISO, the organization may fake, make compliance a big deal, but it's up to you to educate the decision makers so that they understand that compliance is just a ticket to the game. It doesn't represent any sort of sense of accomplishment. It's a minimum level of standards beyond which you need to progress to be able to effectively run your enterprise. So when you focus on compliance, which is an absolutely important element, if you're required to, uh, you've got to do it. Careers are lost over failure to meet those requirements, but you can't stop there. And so as a result, you're going to be riding a couple horses here. One, you'll be working with the compliance and the legal folks to ensure that that is taken care of. But once you've passed that threshold, they're not going to be interested in spending any money or any resources or time to get you beyond that point. Uh, as far as they're concerned, compliant, whether you are at a passing grade or compliance, whether you're at a perfect grade, are equivalent. What we're looking for then is to be able to move our maturity of our organization beyond mere compliance to one of excellence. And that requires then a thorough understanding of all the different elements that could be in your enterprise. Um, and then orchestrating that effectively uh, to be able to deliver that across the board. So right. other thoughts. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, I think we can just take a simple example of spear phishing right? How would we detect and prevent that? We'd probably have email filters. We'd probably have email protection tools like a proof point uh, or something to really watch the malicious emails being sent. And then we do some type of compliance training to our user population to ensure they know what to click on and what not to click on and those safe senders. But at the end of the day, just because you have all of those things in place and you've taught the users the best practices, doesn't stop a user from clicking a link. And when that happens, that's where you need to understand the risk management. So great points there, Mark. I, G. Mark, I love it. Well, let's keep rolling a little bit. Other things, uh, reporting to a CISO. Uh, what, what else do you think is out there? Well, most organizations have to provide some type of security tools and functions. And a lot of times these might fall under a security architecture architecture and engineering shop. So your data loss prevention tools, your firewalls, your antivirus solutions, your web application firewalls, your proxy servers, any of these things that you would use to really identify malicious events in your environment require some type of tooling. This means you have to set up the infrastructure, you have to have the people watching the tools, and you also have to have some type of uh, licensing around what is it we need to grow to. And when you start to build those solutions, then you need some type of a technology advisor group. You know, these typically are security architects. There are going to be folks who identify how web applications exist in your environment and what are the safeguards that you would use to ensure authentication, access control, and other just good defense and depth uh, approaches to securing your organization. Yeah, very good point. As we continue on that, what you find then is that a lot of our focus is protecting that key information or data, depending upon how you want to um, abstract that. We kind of talk about data uh, becomes information, can become knowledge, can become wisdom, and that's kind of a different priority tree there. But if we look at the concept of data security in general, what we're talking about is protecting the C, the confidentiality of that CIA triad, confidentiality, 
integrity, availability. So a lot of perception about security is about confidentiality, making sure that your information cannot be leaked or disclosed to an unauthorized third party. But very much up there as well as that is that I, that integrity, making sure that your information can be relied upon. If someone were to go be able to go ahead and alter the financial reports before they're made public under Sarbanes-Oxley, what's happening is executives are now attesting under oath that these numbers are correct. And if those numbers are suspect, but they don't know about that, uh, they could be changing, exchanging their pinstripes for orange. Uh, as they say, if they end up violating some of the, the criminal penalties that are built into that, that legislation. And so we find then is that we're keeping, if you will, the big bosses out of trouble, but we're also making sure the organization can run effectively. If you can't trust your data, you can't get the job done. And we've heard of a lot of cases of things such as that, uh, going back to, for example, you look at the infection that took place at the Natanz Nuclear Center in the Republic of Iran. Okay, and so a lot of people are familiar with that particular piece of malware, haven't mentioned it yet by name, but we will. And essentially what that did is it altered the display of the programmable logic controllers from what the devices were actually doing to what it is that the authors of the software wanted the operators to think they were doing. And as a result, it ended up shutting down their operations or significantly slowing it down for a long period of time. Okay, so from that perspective, we see that ineffective management of security could really impact the effectiveness of the organization to accomplish its task, whether it's running a business or you know, doing something else. Um, yeah, that things. function of data protection and ensuring least privilege is so key to safeguarding an organization. You know, how do we create those separation of roles? How do we perform those scans sorts of pieces is, is really good. And this is where a lot of the socializing comes as you're doing threat modeling and other activities with uh, the developer population. One thing that is typically carved out a little bit separate from that, but really closely aligns is a security operations center, sometimes a incident response team, uh, you may call it the same thing, but they focus on the logging and monitoring of applications. How do we know when we're being attacked? How do we detect when we already have bad guys in our network, a hunt team, if you will? Each of these threat detection operations vigilance is really key. And we're starting to see more of the application security teams fall under them as they do this new term called purple team. So if you've not heard the purple team concept, you've had a red team who does offensive ways to break into your organization, a blue team who does all the responses to detect all of the bad guys, and a red is a merger or hybrid red plus blue. So we're starting to see a lot of pen testing, red team, purple team, blue teams fall under a security operations center. Yeah, and the importance of a purple team is this, is that you avoid the natural tendency, I think, of the red team to go, ha ha, like I got in. And it's like, well, how'd you get in? Well, I'm not gonna tell you because otherwise I won't be able to get in next time. 
Well, the whole point of being able to run your own red teams isn't to achieve success after success after success of breaking your own systems. It's to be able to improve the security of your own systems based upon that intelligence that you've gained. So ultimately what you want to do, unfortunately, for the, if you're not thinking this way, is you want to make your red team's job extraordinarily difficult. You want to get to the point where that intelligent feedback loop to the blue team saying, hey, I got in this way, let's go fix it. I got in this way, let's go fix it. Uh, I recall many years ago, I worked for a company called Accent Technologies back in the 90s. It was one of the times I sort of came in from the cold and, and worked for a business for a few years. And I remember Will was the guy who was the IT uh, person. And we, you know, this is back when you ran a network, you ran a single cable around the office, like a big loop, and you just tapped in with a vampire tap to, to be able to create the connectivity. What I found out is that in that environment that we had, which was, I guess, Nobel Netware, CC Mail, uh, Windows 95, to bring back some memories for some people, that uh, every week I would find a new security vulnerability or something like that. And basically what I was doing is I was acting as our own internal informal red team. And what would happen is every week, Will would come to my desk and said, hey, I see you're running as privileged account. You're an administrator. You're not supposed to be. I said, well, let me show you how I did that. And so what I did is over a series of weeks is use that as an educational opportunity, although he didn't report to me, nor was that my formal responsibility. I was just simply able to identify as sort of the informal red team where our weaknesses were and every week provide the fix. So it got to the point where I wasn't able to do that anymore. I had effectively blocked myself at my knowledge level out from being able to raise or escalate privilege, which then presumably made it so that nobody else, internal or external, could do the same thing. And so that's kind of the advantage of the purple team. Red is informing blue so that blue does a better job making red jobs harder. And eventually you get to the point where you have a cohesive defense and offense system. Yeah, I like that. Sometimes I'll even hear the difference between a red team and a blue team in terms of risk, where red identifies the likelihood of attacks and blue knows the importance or severity of a system that's being defended. So between the two of them, they can actually help understand that risk matrix that we often see organizations look at. So it's just another way to think about how you can partner together to get a better objective. Now, you mentioned how you were partnering with Will, and I think that's another really good important piece is the Security Operations Center doesn't just help with some of the red team, but they also do the incident response, some of the forensic investigations of what actually happened in our environment, going through the 5Y analysis to fix fixing the root cause and helping the organization understand when we have insider threats. Another part of the organization that I, I think really is so critical is an information security office. Now, it goes by a lot of names depending on the industry you're in. In the federal government, they often use the term ISM, the Information System Security Manager, someone who sits with the developer population to identify what they're trying to do and interpreting the security policy to provide guidance to them, helping with timely remediation of vulnerabilities and being that liaison who knows all of security's capabilities and reporting that to the developer population who are not as intimately familiar with all of the cyber organization. 
Another term for an ism in banking sector is typically called a BISO, a business information security officer or a information security officer. So it doesn't really matter what you call this person or this role. They function as your cyber advisor and help the organization to provide that white glove touch experience to the developers, to the different lines of businesses, so that together they're more effective in communicating their message, getting ground level feedback of where the security policies don't make sense, where developers are going around the policies because it's just problematic and disruptive or where security is too slow in responding to their needs and they're setting up shadow IT. Having that field level reporting provides much more insight into visibility for an organization. And it can also allow security to integrate with operations. Remember the late Howard Schmidt, uh, when he had worked at Microsoft, it explained that, as you remember back in the 1990s, Microsoft was not necessarily known for being a vendor of secure products. In fact, I think it was Excel 97 had an entire flight simulator embedded as an Easter egg. I mean, how does that get past quality control? Anyway, Howard was able to go ahead and set up his team such that he had a kind of dotted line relationship, security expert within each development team, one for Word, Excel, offices, you know, all the suite elements like that, as well as being able to have his reporting that went pretty high up in the organization. What was the net result? Is it wasn't just a security person sitting on the dev team going, yeah, you can't do that. But rather it was more of the Top Gun model where you have somebody who is going to be perhaps your best trainer get sent off to a school to develop and gain expertise and skill sets where you could then go back and over the course of time transfer those skill sets to the rest of your team. Sorry, you know, the, the Top Gun movie is pretty close, I mean, but yeah, there's a little bit of difference in terms of what it actually means to get through there. Uh, and so the net result was, is that by changing the culture of the organization, by making security part of how they did their operations or development, uh, Microsoft has improved significantly. Now, one would argue today that, oh yeah, you still look at Patch Tuesday list of fixes, but do you realize how many tens of millions of lines of code are in there? And actually probably no one human now knows exactly how many lines are code. There may be leftover stuff there uh, from, uh, basically the early days uh, in the 1980s and the code keeps working. So it just keeps running. Um, so security then allows us with effective CISO to be able to not just sit there as a watchdog, but potentially change the course of the organization over time. But the critical element there has got to be senior executive support. You can't come in as a crusader and try to do that or people are just gonna simply go, you know, you're pushing too hard. This is not your area of responsibility. I'm feeling infringed upon. This is my fiefdom and you seem to be wanting a piece of it. And then that's how you end up with those internal disagreements. Gotcha. Yeah, that that's a good point there, Mark. I really like hearing about some of those pieces. They're so important to look in the nuanced details. So we've talked about a variety of functions in the CISO organization. Which one do you think is most likely to produce a CISO? Or do you think you have to do tours in each of the areas to become an effective CISO? Well, that's, that's a good point because I think a lot of us view CISO as being sort of a, a pinnacle job title for a cybersecurity expert. Okay. And so 
what happens is, is that if you're in an IT security career and you work your way along throughout the career set, ultimately say, hey, I want to be a CISO. Now, it's interesting is that then the path somehow gets a little bit um, questionable because I remember that I was talking to a friend of mine who is a recruiter, Lee Kushner. He's been doing security recruiting since the 1990s. And so I've known Lee for, he's well over 20 years. And he, he from time to time, used to try to recruit me for these, these CISO jobs. And I say, hey, um, Russell, I've, I've run large organizations before, and it's kind of where I like to be. So here's a question. How many of your people that you have placed as a CISO have later on promoted to CIO? And he thought for a long time, and he said, I don't think any of them. Now, uh, for every rule, there's, of course, an exception. And Russell Eubanks, who is a gentleman that I've got to meet uh, at SANS, who was a CISO at the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, was promoted to be the CIO. So he holds both hats while he's trying to hold a, you know, recruit a CISO. So it does show that the CISO position, if done correctly, is not a career terminus. Uh, you can then progress beyond that point. And I think Russell's excellence that he has displayed is a good way to show that effectively understanding your organization and doing the hard work will get you there. Now, back to the question of where do people come from? We would like to believe that as a security practitioner, as a red teamer, as a blue teamer, that we have this CISO job is waiting for us. It's the brass ring at the top of the mountain that as we finish climbing, we grab it and it's ours. Well, Deloitte did a study this past year looking at the former roles of CISOs, saying where they come from. It was rather interesting to see what the breakdown was. They found out that uh, the two largest groups uh, were managers and security, security consulting. And let's throw the third one, operational, they're within 1%. So 18, 18, 17%. Managers in other areas. Hey, you've been effective at running this element of business. Go figure out the security thing. And so people who have developed, they're not security folks, but they're put in charge. Security consultants come in there and they say, you're doing an awesome job. Do you want to stay as a CISO? Um, kind of how I got my CISO job. Um, and then operational, which is what we're talking about, is kind of fighting our way up through the ranks, so to speak. Well, those are kind of evenly divided, and that's more than half of those candidates. Now, there's others that come in from like GRC, Governance, Risk, and Compliance. Uh, and then we'll get down into, again, the remainder are mostly security experts, network security architectures, threat detection, data security, auditors, software development, etc. Now, why then do we get this diversity at the top? My belief is this, folks who have been successful in the managerial world or governance, risk and compliance or security consulting, which is nearly 50% of your CISOs from their former roles, are all adept at what? Communicating effectively with management. If you're going to be a consultant, you're typically, at least from my experience, has been running a consulting business, I've got to be able to address up to and including the board in terms of briefing them on what their risks may be, being able to present ideas in a way that I can convince them to make decisions. Ultimately, the decision as a security consultant you want is for them to write a check. And then for the folks who are like GRC, dealing with what? Being able to provide audit reports, identifying what these findings are in briefing. And so if I had to try to go at the first derivative of this and say, what can we learn from the fact that easily 50% of these CISOs, if you will, come from outside, 
That is to say, they're not hired from within, but they promote up or they, they don't promote up, but they're hired from without is that a lot of technical people aren't doing what we're hoping that everybody listening to this uh, broadcast are doing is working on your communication skills, working on your ability to articulate security, nuanced technical details into actionable business language, and to actually build those relationships with people who are executives and decision makers. That's gonna be really kind of the hidden key to success. And you usually don't see that in any breakout, but being unable to do that is certainly a career limiting attribute. If all you can do is talk technology, if you got onto the elevator with the CEO, as we talk about you know, the traditional elevator pitch, what can you say in just a few seconds? And the CEO says, hey, you know, you're the security guy, what's going on? And you, you blurt out, well, we got a whole bunch of TCP IP packets coming in with a SIN fin flag cross, but it looks like the IP resolves out to a DNS that's coming out there from uh, People's Republic of China. But the thing is, is that it doesn't look like it's being routed right. Maybe they changed the border gateway protocol. And it's like, get these people off of my elevator. But instead, if you're able to address it from a risk-based perspective, hey, you're the security guy, what's going on? Well, I'm really concerned is that it turns out our research and development laboratories are under more and more attacks from what appear to be the People's Republic of China. And as we've known from the past, if they're able to successfully steal our ideas, they could get to the patent office before we can take the idea. And that could cost us tens of millions of dollars in revenue and really reduce our stock price. Now, uh, same I, message, different consequence. You think the CEO is going to say, oh yeah, well, have a nice day. He's like, no, I want you to come in and talk to my board. I want you to come in and talk to people. Yeah, I like that communication piece. Really, a CISO's key ability is influence. Can they influence the organization for change? And in order to influence, you have to have great communication skills. You need to be an active listener. You need to have the ability to understand the problems and speak it to someone, what they need to hear, and a way they're willing to listen to the answer. And if you can do that, things are going to be really, really good. And we're going to do a whole separate episode on influence, on communication techniques, and other things to help you be more effective as a CISO. So stay tuned for that. But I, I love this focus of how do we really communicate? Because the one thing that's very different about a CISO compared to all the other cyber jobs is you're not reporting to a cyber person. If you're the deputy, you're reporting to the chief CISO. If you're a security architect, you're probably reporting to a deputy CISO. Those sorts of things mean that the person above you always speaks the language of cyber, but the CISO needs to really speak the language of risk, the risk, the threat, the likelihood, the impact, the severity, the resources, those sorts of things are how the business speaks in terms of finance, in terms of legal, in terms of compliance. And those are the peers that the CISO has when he reports to the CIO or the CEO or the executive risk committees in the company. Yeah, and so as you see then is that the ability to enhance your vocabulary, so to speak. So when I did my, my MBA back in the 90s, it was interesting because 
people saying, well, why are you getting a business degree? I says, well, I think it's important for my education. I, I took what they call an executive MBA. It was a polite word for old. It means you're in your, your 30s instead of your 20s. But what I got out of this was the ability to learn the language of business and become proficient in it. It was, if you will, almost like a 22-month course in speaking executive language. What came out of that? Uh, a couple of things. Number one is, is that uh, I was then able to frame and present and communicate as a fellow executive. Nobody kind of then lapsed back into that old uh, language speak. But also what it did is from a financial perspective, it was a huge inflection point in terms of revenue. Prior to that, I worked in technical jobs. After that, I worked in management jobs. And the compensation is quite a bit different. And is, it was interesting and uh, the details aren't important, but within seven months of graduation, between a negotiated new job offer, using the negotiation skills I've learned, putting to work that uh, other skill sets I learned in my business degree, I had completely earned more money to pay back entirely my master's degree. Seven month payback until I was cash flow positive. And someone said, well, why did you need to go to business degree if you could do that? It's just because that's how I learned how to do that. And so we can discuss a little bit later the value of a business education. And sometimes the whole um, MBA is of great value to some people. Others may say, well, I want to be a little bit more focused. Be careful about being uh, neglectful of your future. So many years ago, I published what I call GMARC's Corollary to Moore's Law. Remember Gordon Moore, he was the founder of Intel in 1964, observed that the density of transistors doubles about every 18 months, and therefore computing power, kind of by analogy, doubles every 18 months. And to a large extent, that's held over the last you know, 50 some odd years. Well, GMARC's Corollary states that half of what you know about security will be obsolete in 18 months. I put that on the back of my business cards. And if you think about it, earlier in 2020, Windows 7 became obsolete, although there's plenty of enterprises that are probably still running that and earlier versions. As we go forward, we're going to find out that in the next 18 months, all those you know, Windows 8 and 8.1 machines, those are all going to potentially fall by the wayside. We're going to see new operating systems come on, new applications take over, new communications protocols in terms of ways that we're going to move information faster and better. If you want to be successful in this career path, you've got to dedicate yourself to lifetime education. I remember when I was in the Bay Area, uh, I was talking to an Uber driver, and he was telling what I did. He said, oh, that sounds really cool. It sounds like you guys make a lot of money. I want, to, I want to become a security person. How do I do it? And I said, well, it's sort of like joining, it's like being a professional football player. You have to have a lot of natural talent, and you have to work like crazy at it. He says, like, what do you mean? And I explained to him the fact that you can't just rely on the knowledge you gained at a university degree. you got to keep educating yourself year in and year out. And for those of us who hold security certifications, every one of those has a CPE, a continuing professional educational requirement. And there's a good reason for it. Because what you learn in your classroom a year or two or three ago may no longer be current. If you're not willing to dedicate yourself to continuous learning, I think you are not in the right career path. And... Uh, as a result, you might find that that unwillingness to expand your knowledge base could be career limiting. So that's just kind of a little, okay, I'm off my soapbox on that one. So GMARC, I, I appreciate your thoughts. I really think that uh, GMARC's law or a corollary of every 18 months, your skills diluting is an important thing. And so I think that kind of wraps up the show in a really good way. 
GMARC and I are excited to present this podcast, CISO Tradecraft, where what we really do is focus on what are the skills you need to focus on to go from being a technical person to gaining those MBA soft skills from understanding not just the right answer, but how do you get that answer funded? How do you get effective communications with your peers in the C-suite so that you can make the organization grow or have more resources to respond to the variety of issues that are happening? This is really what the Tradecraft is about, building that executive presence, competence, influence. And we really think this is going to be so powerful because we're seeing a lot of places focus on how do we improve the cyber organization? How do we improve the maturity of all of the things within our organization, the processes, the tools? But we don't see enough on how do we mature our personnel, our number one asset in the company to provide those wealth of experiences, that succession planning, that knowledge, tradecraft, skills, and abilities so that we have the right leaders tomorrow leading our company. G-Mark? That's a, that's, a, that's a great summary. So I think what, um, we'll look forward to getting a chance to share more with you. If you've got other people that are in the, that you're friends with, as most of us have a, a pretty good circle of contacts, let them know about this. Uh, you don't get ahead in this industry by hoarding information. We have a huge amount of information that's available out there. Uh, everything from the B-Sides conferences, which are done pretty much at cost, uh, to being able to find open source software. Be willing to help your fellow security professional advance in their career. Don't view that as creating, oh, I'm going to create more competition. I don't want anybody in my organization to learn what I'm learning from this podcast because then maybe they're going to bump me out of that job. No. Be viewed as a mentor. Be viewed as the resource that provides valuable skill training and valuable uh, actions for others. And then you'll become the go-to person in your organization. Don't try to hold others back. Not that I'm suggesting that you would, but I've, I've run into that in some organizations that have a very adversarial culture. Uh, and if you're at an organization that has an adversarial culture, it's unfortunate. Uh, but we'll talk later in one of the other content. Uh, or podcasts about political awareness, being able to detect what is going on, what's happening at the highest level in the organization, and then how can you build a superior culture within your own domain and have that advance as you advance in the organization so your legacy is one of excellence, one of creating a harmonious working relationships. And as I used to tell people in the Navy when I was a commanding officer, I says, my reputation is that of getting my people promoted what's yours. That's a great thought to th close on, G. Mark. Thank you. So if you like the podcast today, please like and subscribe, share it with your friends. As this starts to go more viral, we'd love to hear more feedback. Put your comments on the podcast and visit our website, CISOTradeCraft.com. Thank you again for listening and we appreciate your time. Take care.